Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. On Spectrum, we cover a wide range of topics that are important to our daily lives. We feature journalists, authors, scholars, policymakers, activists, scientists, innovators, and sometimes people who just have fascinating stories. Today, we talk with Dr. Jennifer Shuba, an international expert on political demography and demographic security. She's an author, associate professor at Rhodes College, and a global fellow at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. We talk about her new book, Eight Billion and Counting, how sex, death, and migration shaped the world, and the relevance of her theories to the war between Russia and Ukraine. The book, Eight Billion and Counting, How Sex, Death, and Migration Shaped the World. Uh, What do you mean by that? Well, a lot of us who are listening would remember these big milestones when world population hit 7 billion, 6 billion, 5, and, you know, some of us even remember when it hit 4. And so here we are at a moment in time when world population is cruising towards 8 billion people. And we know it's important collectively, but there's not a general understanding of the implications. And the implications are enormous in terms of formulating policies around national security or climate change or healthcare. So I wrote this book to help us understand better how to think about demographic shifts in order to understand the types of policies that we need to make now. Think about investing today to shape the future that we want tomorrow. Now, I I looked at the book and I looked at all the publicity about it, and it's suggested for policymakers, uh, leaders of any kind, uh, business leaders, and sort of talked about seizing opportunities, but also assessing risks. How would that play? Well, I think what's really useful about demographics and why I'm not tired of talking about it after a couple of decades is that it's really the best crystal ball we have when we want to understand the future. And I feel like that's just an inherent human desire to think about where we're going. So much science fiction and all of that. And our future is really baked into our demographic trends of today. So, you know, today's kindergartners will one day be entering the labor force. And we could think about looking at the the number of kindergarten seats that are filled And those will be the annual potential entrance into the labor force, you know, 15 or 20 years from now. Or we could think about even going further in the future, when those folks retire, we can kind of project what our annual retirement numbers would look like. So 
I think it's really useful to have this crystal ball for us. And so if you are the kind of person who thinks about the future, whether that's because you're actually in a business that does some sort of appraisal of the future, or you're just curious, demographics gives you that really basic understanding of what the landscape will look like. This book is interesting uh, because it is authoritative in in the sense that you you are an expert in this field and you've you've researched the heck out of it and and it, all of that research is available but but in reading through portions of it 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 just seems accessible to me as as a person who's not trained uh in your field was that your intent and if you, if it was how did you go about doing that Tom, that is the highest compliment you could give me. Thank you so much. You've just made my day totally because that is exactly what I wanted to do. Um, you know, I'm an, I'm an undergraduate teacher. I have spent a long time in the classroom talking to undergraduates, really smart and engaged undergraduates. And I think that has helped me so much be able to take complex research and distill it down to those nuggets that we really need to know. And this is not an insult to either side, but I think that audience has a lot in common with a policymaker as well. Everybody's busy. There's so much information coming at us. I'm sure you feel the same way I do that every day I am absolutely flooded with information. Oh my gosh. Right. It's overwhelming. Social media, so many newspapers and all of that. And I thought, let me make this one-stop shop to take you know, I've done these deep dives in research, and then I'm also citing a lot of my colleagues' research in this and rewrite this in a way that is digestible and straightforward for a broader audience. It, it was interesting to me that you had a 31-page introduction. Yeah. I, I don't know that I've ever read a book with such a long introduction, but the introduction sort of gave me the fundamentals to look further in the book. Good. Yes. I mean, what another thing that's in the introduction, I think, are lots of charts and graphs. So you get the, in the book, you get introduced or like gently led into the world of the population data. But I'm really trying to do it in a way that has you question what you already know from the get go. That's one of the purposes of that introduction. Like, okay, you think you know about you know, maybe the largest countries in the world. But have you thought about the rainbow of ways that that might matter? And so, you know, it's just a little teaser for the following chapters in the book where you can take deeper dives into things like youthful populations or uh, ethnic politics. One of the things in there, it says uh, you need to, one needs to look at policies and reading the world through a population lens. I've heard you say that. What do you mean by that? Yeah, this little tagline about how to read the world. I mean, to me, that's, that's again, the, the thing that's most interesting to me. You know, a lot of us are interested in geography and maps. And so my, my, my house, for example, I've got maps of all kinds of places that I've lived or places I wish I lived, like Italy. Um, and I think we'd have less on our walls, you know, big maps about population trends, it's the same thing, though. Geography and demography are really the scene setters in, in, in 
politics and economic relations and social relations build on top of those. So if you're somebody who's interested in maps, you know, this is kind of my way of saying, you like to read the world. Here's another way to do that. Age structure is one example of this. So if you lined up everybody in a country from oldest to youngest and had the middle person raise their hand, that middle person's age differs tremendously in countries around the world. So there are both these quick ways to use demographics to read the world, like what's the median age in various countries in the world. Um, and that would give you a snapshot into, you know, are they dealing more with um, potential conflict from maybe a very youthful population where there's not a lot of jobs, not a lot of opportunity for people, lots of restless youth, or are they dealing with um, overloaded retirement systems? And then, of course, the rest of the book, we've got much deeper dives into what it means to read the world. Now, you look at this from a global uh, standpoint, uh, demographics and demographic changes and demographic security, but but it, it also applies to this country alone as well, correct? Absolutely, yes. We actually had a, a news report come out. Uh, today, that deaths exceeded births in half of U.S. states between 2020 and 2021. And so the book is highly relevant to this exact moment in U.S. history where for a long time, the U.S. was really broken away from the pack of developed countries in terms of its population trends. So we got these three ingredients of population change, fertility, mortality, migration, and um we had slightly higher fertility than some of our peers, Italy, for example, or Greece or Germany. We had much more robust migration than pretty much anybody else in the world. The U.S. hosts the largest migrant stock of anywhere. And then I'll come back to mortality perhaps at a different moment because that, that's a, an exception here. Um, but that meant that our population was really growing and younger than some of our peers. But that has changed. And some of it is for really good reasons. So um, adolescent and teen births are way down in the United States. And that has helped to drive our fertility lower. So we're really in line with our peers in terms of fertility now. Um, our exceptionalism is also in mortality, though, as I mentioned, and that is uh, not in a good direction. So before COVID, life expectancy in the U.S. was already falling. And for, in general, life expectancy should not be falling. We learn more and more about how to live longer, healthier lives every year. So it should only be getting better globally, but particularly for a rich country. It's really tragic to see it go in the opposite direction. And of course, that was compounded both in the U.S. and in other countries by COVID-19. So the era of U.S. demographic exceptionalism is over, and we really need to think about what that means for how we allocate resources, political power, et cetera. Even internally, uh, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, there's been a lot in the news about uh, climate change and the impact uh, on our environment, and especially in the area of water and water availability. And it seems to me as a layperson that uh, that uh, paucity of water and water supplies are, are driving people to different locations within the country. Would that be correct? And if so, it, does that have policy ramifications? So globally, 
I think it is certainly an issue that local scarcity of resources drives people to move. Um, It's gotten a lot more attention because climate change has really grown on the agenda in the past couple of years. But it's actually been the case, of course, for centuries and millennia that, that local scarcity drives people to move. And water, of course, is one of those reasons. It's hard to transport, as we know. Um, a lot of the water around the world actually moves in the food that we eat. So certainly, we have to think about the balance of population and resources in individual communities around the world. Now, in the U.S., I think that's a good question. And, and maybe I could actually ask a, a follow-up of you about the U.S. Do we think that people in the U.S. who have relatively higher standards of living I wonder what degree that plays a role in people moving. Um, well, I, yeah. I, I think that if you look at California, some areas of California now have limits on, on yeah. water on, on certain days. Uh, and some people, uh, I know this is anecdotal, but from, from reading the news, people are saying we're sick of it. We need to move someplace where water is 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 more plentiful. So uh, perhaps we move more to the Midwest uh, since the, the coasts have had more droughts than the Midwest. You know, those kinds of things yeah. it, it sort of interest me of how we're having population shifts even within this country involving uh, climate change. Well, and I think that the extra demographic variable to add in here is to think about um urbanization, because while I've also heard those anecdotes, and I just got back from Tucson from a book festival there, certainly very dry place, but just absolutely teeming with people moving in there. The population was growing. Um, There are certain places that are always going to be attractive, no matter what. And so I feel like the those spots that are vacated by people who are tired of not being able to grow a garden, uh, they are quickly filled. And that, and we know that because housing prices are staying so high in in places in California, just absolutely astronomical. And um, of course, they're going up everywhere right now. That's a different story outside of this topic. But um, many of our midwestern st- cities are still not growing to the the way we might want them to. I mean, I'm thinking about I live in Memphis, and so we're a decent sized metropolitan area but fairly stagnant. And so we certainly haven't seen that kind of influx, not like Nashville or Austin. But if you're, if you're a policymaker, you, you can't just look at now, right? You have yeah. to look at projections. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you're smart and you're in the, a Midwestern town or in the Mid-South, you should really think about taking advantage of people who might want to leave for numerous reasons. Some of them might be natural resources, but others might just be that cost of living or... Um, I mean, that's, we love living here for cost of living purposes. So it would be a really good way to be forward looking and put policies in place to make your area more attractive. Well, let's get back to the, the global view uh, that you talk about in your book. And I thought one of the things interesting that you set up right at the beginning is that you say the 20th century was a story of population growth. And the 21st century is a story about differential growth. And that sort of is a thesis throughout the book. Can you amplify on that a bit? Absolutely. So 20th century was 
absolutely amazing in terms of global population change because we went from 1.6 billion people total at the beginning of the century to 6.1 billion people total at the end of the century. And it was just this this huge explosion in world population that really, I think, shaped a lot of people's views about population. But in the 21st century, while the first you know, couple of decades felt somewhat similar. And I mean, we're obviously at 8 billion now. We've, we've gone up 2 billion here just in this century so far. I think what the moment where we are right now and in the very near future, we have to focus more on the differential growth. So globally, we're all headed towards an aging population. And we've never had this happen before in all of human history. Um, we Japan's median age, that middle person, if we ask them to raise their hand, is 48 years old now, and it'll soon be in the 50s. And Japan's certainly not the only country uh, spreading it's South Korea, lots of Eastern European and Western European countries. The United States is headed towards 40 for a median age as well. And this is unprecedented. But there's another wave of aging states that includes Vietnam, Thailand, etc. Um, and those states exist dealing with problems about um, political power in the hands of older voters versus younger voters and in whose interests get represented. And how do you allocate scarce resources when you perhaps have um, very generous promises in retirement and health care to an increasingly growing elderly population? But at the same time, there are still countries with Fertility as high as seven children on average per woman, such as in Niger and all throughout the, the Sahelian region of Africa, the total fertility rate is just much higher. Chad, for example. And so at the same time that we might want to focus on the issue of population aging, and that's one of my favorite topics. So, you know, I love people to focus on population aging. We can't forget <laughs> that there is still a tremendous divide in fertility worldwide. Same for uh, mortality. Let's put COVID-19 aside for a, a, a minute and non-communicable diseases are actually the top killer worldwide. It's not communicable diseases and that's for the first time ever. And as we focus on dealing with things like heart disease and stroke and cancer in developed countries, we can't forget that 32 school buses of children still die from diarrheal diseases each day. Malaria is still a significant issue, much more so than COVID in Africa. And then migration, there's also a tremendous divide. We know that the areas of the world where people are mostly displaced are in poorer regions with lots of conflict, and they don't go far away. Despite the headlines thinking about Western Europe, they go next door. So the, the states that are generally least equipped to deal with an influx of people are the ones who have the greatest burden. I even think we can talk about that with Ukraine. Um, they Moldova, I think, has taken in just a tremendous number of Ukrainian refugees, and they had thought they would really only be able to take in about ten or 15,000. It's far exceeded that. One of the things that uh, amazed me, a figure that you cite in your book, is that more babies are born in least populated countries, and I think the figure was 240 babies per minute in under undeveloped countries versus 25 per minute in the most developed countries. That, to me, is an astounding figure. Yeah, it really highlights that divide. Um 
And I'm sometimes wary of including statistics like that because I think the knee-jerk reaction a lot of people have to that is they think, oh no, that's too many babies in those places over there. And that's certainly not my intention. Um, there's a lot of research that points to how you how people's fertility preferences, how the number of children they desire changes as a country's economy develops, as their standard of life increases. And so I really try to give statistics like that to say, hey, there's this huge divide, but then go deeper and redirect into here's what we know works to reduce fertility in places where people want to have fewer children. And that's investments in education and health, for example. You also had another figure in there that uh, I found astounding. That was 98% of our growth is in underdeveloped countries. Yes, it sure is. Put that in a context of what that might mean. Uh, that's, That's just astounding figure. Yes, it definitely is. Well, you know, the United States is uh, pretty soon going to be eclipsed by Nigeria as the third most populous country in the world. Um, Nigeria will hit, I think, about 400 million mid-century, and the United States will be below that. And as we've said, since deaths exceed births in half of U.S. states, um, and the U.S. has below replacement fertility and a mortality issue as well, it's really migration that keeps the U.S. population numbers growing. So when we think about the global order over the coming decades, and this is not something I would certainly solve, but I hope it, it makes people think when they read the book. You know, think about our global power structures. What kinds of countries out there wield the most power and influence? It has often been the countries that are the most populous ones. I mean, if we think about the world order that was set after World War II, it was the most populous countries kind of set the rules of the game. Right. Those countries are shrinking in many cases. And how much does the world order really reflect the large populations, the people who would like to have power and influence? Um, and, and how okay with that are they? I mean, I think China's Belt and Road Initiative is one example of saying, hey, we weren't included on this list. We didn't set the rules of the game to the degree that we would have liked. So we're going to try to have our own game with our own rules. One of the other differentials you talk about is richest versus poorest um, and the the economic divide. Um, that seems to me to be a catalyst probably for conflict when you have a large underclass that's economically deprived in perhaps undeveloped countries and and a richer, smaller class uh, in in developed countries. Talk about the importance of that division. Well, I actually think I would love to highlight that division even within countries because um, what happens within those countries, I think, affects it on that global scale. So if we think about, let's just take a, a poor country like Chad, for example. All right. There, I have high fertility. The population is very young. Uh, I don't have the figure off the top of my head, but it'd be a very fair guess to say median age is 20 years old. Okay. And again, wow. that's in contrast to the U.S., which is about 38. So half the population is under 20. And 
as we know, as a as an undeveloped country, as a less developed country, a poor country, they don't have um, jobs waiting for people when they're ready to enter the labor market. So you've got people coming of age who would like to have uh, get married and have the money to get married, who would like to start a family, who would like to have a job, who would like to have a say in how they are governed. And in many cases, they can't do any of those things. And so they have a low opportunity cost. They're not giving up anything to join a rebel group to really say, we don't like this situation. We want to fight against it. There's nothing that they're really giving up because they're not in those structures. And so that's why those countries have a higher likelihood of outbreak of conflict. And we know this through research that countries that have a young age structure have a much higher likelihood of rebellion, um, coups, et cetera. Well, is it it too far-fetched to say that we're seeing some of this in this country with an economic divide that's played out politically? I don't think it is too far-fetched. No, I think, you know, here's the difference um, where we can exercise a lot of our frustrations through our democratic political process, but the underlying dynamics, I think, are the same. Um, And I really am curious how that will play out over the next couple of decades now that we've had even greater stress on the economy and jobs from COVID at the same time that college is incredibly expensive, that young people can't build the same kind of wealth that older generations did, and so on. One other aspect, we've talked about the world aging, but another aspect that that you highlight in the book that that I found interesting, and I think it's probably counterintuitive to what most people think, you you say the world is urban. And I think that most people would think that the world is still agriculturally based. Yes. And so the world is urban is one of those bumper stickers um, that I hope people will will take and get curious about and then dive in a little bit more here um, as we're doing. Because while it is true that globally over half the population lives in urban areas, and it's also true that places where urbanization has been the least so far, um, parts of Asia and in Africa, those are urbanizing more. So the world is urban is a true statement in terms of where people live and where we will see the future going. But there really is more to it than that. And one of the things I find most interesting and frustrating as a researcher is that there is no standard definition of urban. So when I hear urban, I think about Singapore and, you know, when when I was doing some research there once, looking up and seeing that crazy cruise ship on top of the skyscrapers, that's that's right. amazing. That is really uh, what urban looks like, or Tokyo. But uh, where I'm from, which has no stoplight, my hometown, that is also considered urban. So the world is urban, yes. And we need to think about you know what that means for climate, how we allocate resources, food, etc. We also need to to peel back layers of that onion and say urban is not the same everywhere. And you were asking a minute ago about the underclass in many cities, I mean, underclass in general, and I think there is an underclass in many cities. That includes in places like China, that urbanized very quickly. Um, And I think that if you're a researcher trying to think about conflict, whether political conflict or armed conflict, um, think about economic development, looking into urbanization would really be a, a rich area to explore. We'll be back after this message. 
The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educated students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders who will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provide benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. I want to get into uh, the area of Russia and the Ukraine, and I, I read a very interesting article in the New York Times just the last uh, couple of days, and, and you were quoted extensively uh, in it, uh, saying that the the birth rate and aging population in Russia was supposed to weaken it but apparently we got that wrong. What what does that mean? Can you amplify and, and explain that a bit? Sure. I think at you know when you get down to it, misreadings of Russia's demographics that I've seen personally just in my policy work is one of the biggest drivers of me writing this book. I really wanted to correct that narrative before it was too late. <laughs> um, and then by the time the book is, is sent to the printer, Russia invades Ukraine. And um, it's very frustrating to see policymakers, particularly um, in the first decade of this century, really all the way till 2012 or so, U.S. policymakers would look at Russia's demographics and the country at one point was shrinking by about 400,000 to half a million people a year. Okay, so they were in this demographic decline. This was all of the headlines. Um, we knew they had low fertility. We knew that they had very high mortality, particularly for men. I mean, it was really um, low life expectancy. And because some people have heard the old adage that demography is destiny, they took that to mean they didn't have to worry about Russia. That Russia would, that population is such a foundation of national power that Russia would not be able to project power outside its borders. And I was always very suspicious of that because I think demography is not destiny. And I'm trained as a political scientist. And so I know that really it's the politics that's destiny. And again, it's all about how do you allocate resources? That's that's politics. Russia and Russia's leaders have the choice as to how they allocate their resources. I mean, every state has that choice. Some are constrained when they're democracies by their people. Some that are not democracies are not constrained in that way. And so I think one reason Russia's demographics were fundamentally misread is that People think that an aging population is the same as an aging individual. We are less likely at 80 years old to pick up a really heavy gun and go charging <laughs> through a field trying to mow people down. 
Physically, it's really tough. We also will have cognitive decline at the end of our lives. We know this to be true. But if you take that and you just stick it on a society, that's wrong. I mean, aging societies are not like aging individuals. There are young people in aging societies. It just means that the age of that middle person raising their hand is higher and higher each year. So aging societies can still innovate. Look at Japan, incredible innovation coming from the oldest country on the planet. But it also means that they can be belligerent. And um, I think it's a real shame that people at the highest levels of the U.S. government misread Russia's population trends uh, back then. Now, certainly that's not to give an oversimplistic reading. There are many people who knew Russia would still be a threat. But I want to end this discourse about an aging population being the same as an aging individual and that an aging world will be more peaceful because we need to prepare for the fact that it may not. And and if you look at Russia's motivation, and and I know that's difficult to do, uh, is there a demographic element to uh, Russia's motivation uh, with the Ukraine, or is it purely political? You know, I'm sure there is one, um, and I I wouldn't want to overplay that. Um, certainly, it wouldn't be the the total right. motivation here. But I I think it would be fair to say that that's some of it because Putin himself has often mentioned uh, how Russia's population, he's once said, was the number one issue facing the country. Um, and I think he's well aware that while Russia's population trends did improve some in recent years, um, mortality improved, life expectancy got longer, um, fertility even rose a little bit. They're headed towards a shrinking population. That's really hard to swallow when you put that in the context of what we know about Putin's worldview. And I don't think it would be outside his calculus to gather more territory. I mean, Russia added more people just by uh, annexing Crimea. So I I think it could have played a role. So if we look at the the war in the Ukraine, it's lasted now about a month. And unfortunately, I'm sort of hearing rumblings. People are tired of it already. You know, we have such a small national attention span oh. and perhaps global attention span that if something's not over in 20 minutes, uh, we don't pay attention anymore. Uh how does that play into yeah. you know looking at this situation as a long-term issue and not just a, a short-term problem? I think that's a great question, and the answer is in the realm of migration. So we have seen this happen over and over with global crises that um, resulted in huge displaced populations. Initially, there's often an outpouring of support for the people who are displaced. Very quickly, there's some fatigue. Why are these people still displaced? And so my worry from the very beginning with Ukraine and, you know, the quarter of the population that has now been displaced is that while it looks like there are many countries that have opened their arms to Ukrainians, and they have, I mean, that's true. Um, I wouldn't, I don't expect there to be a permanent shift even though they're Ukrainians and not Syrians. And there's been a lot written about, you know, racial elements to this. I think 
they migrants tend to wear out the welcome mat in countries. Um, and when the attention span of people towards this conflict waning, I think the people who are going to suffer will be those who are displaced. I heard a, a report on the BBC uh, today, the same day you and I are recording this, uh, talking about the, the millions of children uh, that have been displaced and are refugees, and um, that there is this will have impact for generations. Can you explain how refugees, especially the loss of children, demographically would impact the country for generations? Oh, sure. I mean, I think there's the individual level and the societal level both. I mean, certainly, I, you know, I we know that those children will have experienced an unbelievable trauma, um, and as happens with with children who are displaced all over the world, and that affects their individual lives for the rest of their lives. Um, demographically, you know, Ukraine had already a below replacement fertility rate. Um, and I would expect that it will fall even further in the future. So we know some research um, looking at Eastern Europe after the fall of the Iron Curtain and the upheaval that the dismantling of the Soviet Union caused in a lot of Eastern European countries put some downward pressure on fertility. I mean, a lot of people were not very hopeful about the future. And when you're not hopeful about the future, you don't want to do the one thing that is super, super future oriented, and that's bring a child into the world. And so um, there's research on that. And I think we could borrow from that and apply it to today that in both Russia and in Ukraine, um, we are likely to see greater downward pressure on fertility because of all the tragedy and upheaval um, that's happening really with both countries. The other factor uh, that I just read was the fear of trafficking mm. of children. Oh, yeah. And and the impact that that would have. Uh, I'm sure that that is, is going to be a huge issue. And, and, you know, I think one of the really complicated issues with migration that I get into with in the book is um, this intermingling of smuggling and trafficking. And while trafficking is not my main area or of expertise, certainly, migrant smuggling is both this savior and this devil. Um, for a lot of migrants, they can't get out of their situation that's unsafe and into a safer situation unless they pay a smuggler. And so in some ways, smugglers can really save people by bringing them from point A through lots of B, C, and D all the way to their end point. But smuggling also, of course, means people are incredibly vulnerable to exploitation. And that can be trafficking. It could be people who are kidnapped, held for ransom, people who um, have their money taken from them by smugglers. And I think what that points to is we need a much more coordinated effort, much more governance to help people get safely out of conflict situations and into somewhere safe. And we just don't have that. I mean, it tends to be really ad hoc um, all over the world, even in Ukraine, and that's why people are forced to use smugglers, because we just don't have the resources devoted globally 
to help people get out of these situations and resettle temporarily or permanently somewhere safe. The United States just announced today that it was going to take in uh, 100,000 refugees from the Ukraine uh, and sort of fast track their entry into the country. Given the millions that have left Ukraine, that seems like a small token. Is that meaningful at all? Well, if you are just focused on the United States, it is a meaningful number because that would be about where we have our our cap annually for refugee resettlement. Um, Prior to Donald Trump and, you know, perhaps some under Biden, um, but globally, less than 1% of refugees have been resettled annually uh, for years. So the norm is not that people are resettled. And I've been trying to look in that um, 100,000 number as well to see if there are, is this the temper, is it going to be temporary? Like it is in Europe? I don't know yet. I know. I couldn't find anything on that yet either. I mean, I think that would be interesting to note because a lot of people from Ukraine don't want to be permanently resettled. Same from Syria or Somalia or other countries. People want to go home. Um, And I, and so the challenge for resettlement is not just on the receiving end. Um, It is woefully inadequate on the receiving end. Um, numbers for resettlement are are very low. But it, it's it's more complicated than that because people would like conflicts to end so they can go home. So the best thing that can happen is for the conflict to end and, and there to be peace and prosperity brought to a, a country. But of course that's the case. And how on earth do you tackle that? I mean, that's something we've been looking at forever. So what's next? What should we be looking at from an international perspective that might have impact on on global peace uh, from a demographic point of view or a demographic security point of view? What should we have our antenna out for? I think there's a lot of opportunity that we should refocus on. Um, With demographics, we often go straight to the negative. Now, what are population problems? There's a lot of great alliteration here. We have dire demographics or dismal demographics and, you know, all of this. And I I occasionally use some clickbait myself, but then I just try to say, you know what? There's a lot of great things out there, too. And since so many countries in the world are headed towards very rapid population aging, um, I think if I had, you know, if I ran an investment company, I would really think more about uh, where the opportunities are for um, older consumers and older workers and how to to really use them as a resource. Um, we also know that so many countries in the world no longer have high fertility and it's been fast. So trends change fast, but sometimes our thinking is really slow to catch up. Most people probably don't realize how few countries there are in the world with really high fertility. It has really fallen just in the last couple of decades. That means those countries have a bonus, um, a demographic bonus of workers. And so those would be great countries to think about investing in and help shape so that their economy matches their demography. They have the potential for economic growth because they have lots of workers, but do they have the right policies and investment climate in place to really take advantage of that? And I think that's where we should focus our attention. One last question, and 
that you you alluded to it earlier uh, the the racial or or ethnic bias in refugees uh, neighboring countries uh, have at least temporarily accepted the Ukrainians in 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 droves but uh, immigrants from the Middle East and, and war-torn areas in the Middle East have had struggles. Does that have any long-term impact? Well, I think it could have many long-term impacts. I mean, most of our conflicts in the world are in less developed countries. So with that in mind, Ukraine is an exception. Um, the borders remain pretty closed for people who are displaced. I would and, and just to be more specific, developed country borders remain pretty closed to people who are displaced from less developed countries. And one reason for that is that migration, the idea of migration itself, really got folded into the national security discourse uh, in a serious way after 9-11, um, where migrants themselves began to be seen as threats to national security. And I think that is one of several, but one really important reason why um, we have seen those borders closed to places where that are experiencing a lot of conflict and displacement. The book, Eight Billion and Counting, How Sex, Death, and Migration Shaped the World. Uh, Jennifer, it's been a delight talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tom. This has been great. Today, we've been talking with political demographer, Dr. Jennifer Shuba, about her new book and its relevance to the war in the Ukraine. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover in the future, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Have a good day, everyone. <laughs>